Welcome back to another episode of the Education Movement Podcast, everyone. Since our last episode, we started sharing some words of wisdom before the start of the show. Today's words of wisdom come from the UCLA legendary coach, John Wooden. In his book, A Lifetime of Observations and Reflections on and Off the Court, he says, quote, Perhaps you fret and think you can't make a difference in the way things are. Wrong. You can make the biggest difference of all. You can change yourself. And when you do that, you become a very powerful and important force, namely a good role model, end quote. And speaking of good role models, today we'll be joined by National Teacher of the Year finalist, Linda Rost. Throughout our conversation, Ms. Rost and I will discuss her journey as a teacher, what she's doing with her students during this pandemic, and things educators can still do to have meaningful and impactful learning outside of the classroom. I hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I enjoyed making it. See you on the other side. Here we go. Welcome, everybody. We have quite the treat today as we are joined by Linda Rost, who is one of the National Teacher of the Year finalists. Linda is a science teacher at Baker High School who teaches biology, AP biology, chemistry, science research, and anatomy and physiology. She has also facilitated science research programs at Carter County High School and started the same program at her current school. Ms. Rost holds two master's degrees, one in education and curriculum and instruction, and one in science and education. She's also pursuing a PhD in curriculum and instruction in STEM. She's also the three-time winner of the Junior Science and Humanities Symposium teacher and a two-time recipient of the Continental Cares Grant. And in 2016, she won the National Bernier Engineering Contest. She's also the chair of the Baker Public School Professional Development Committee, which she created. And if that's not enough to impress you, she also serves as a teacher leader for the Montana Partnerships with Region of Excellence in STEM and for the Northwest Earth and Space Science Pipeline Grants. All of that while she engages in countless speaking engagements around the state of Montana and other parts of the country as a National Teacher of the Year finalist. So, Ms. Rost, I can't say this enough. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I am flattered that you decided to join me. So, Ms. Rost, when I look at a resume like yours, I have to ask, how do you do it? How are you able to manage so many things at once so effectively? I think that when we learn one skill, um, and then we can start applying it to other things and we just keep building our skills, then that allows us to be able to do a lot of things really easily. So I think that's what, how I've looked at it. I'm, I'm growing and learning, and then I can keep applying these skills to other important um, pursuits. And I also just look for opportunities that I think will help my students and my school and my state, and I prioritize those. Mm, I see. Well, I'm going to make sure I write that down so I can be as effective as you are. The first thing that I want to talk about is yourself, right? Can you tell us a little more about yourself and who Linda Rost is? Yeah, I grew up in El Paso, Texas. I was born in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and um, I was raised by a biology professor and a math teacher. So I had a lot of STEM in my background and my upbringing, and we were always doing science. And I went to New Mexico State for school. I got a degree in range science because I love science and I love ecology and being out, outdoors. Um, but then during my junior year in college, I started to make a shift to education. I was working in the lab and working in the field and it was really fun. I got to take part in a lot of research. But I remember thinking um, to myself, 
uh, I was working on a project at that time, a research project that was 10 years, a 10 year scope. Um, and I remember thinking I could, I could answer this one question in 10 years, or I could spend 10 years in the classroom and make an impact on hundreds of students. So that's when I started to shift into education. And um, I also at that time was tutoring some of my peers in college. And I saw all these barriers that they had to understanding some of the really hard science courses. And that bothered me that there were so many barriers. And I realized that I was good at tutoring them and that they understood things when I explained it to them but not when the professor did. And so all of those things kind of helped me shift into education. And that's what brought me here. Let me ask you this. Your first year that you started teaching, were you good at it right off the back? I cried a lot. Um, I, I didn't have any kind of teaching. I didn't have any credentials. I didn't have any coursework about teaching. Um, so I was, I was prepared in the, in the science content part, but not in the teaching. Um, so it was really hard. I remember calling my husband like every day at lunch and crying and tell he, telling him that I did everything wrong. And, but at the same time, like my students were really gracious and patient with me and they were learning alongside me. And I was learning some of the science content alongside them. I had never had a physics class ever, not even in mm. high school physics so they were really patient and I, I think I had this feeling that I was a learner right away and I was a learner alongside them and I'm so thankful for that like boot camp time because that feeling has never left me I, I still feel like a learner with them and I still want to get into that space where I'm learning right beside them yeah yeah that's great I, I think that's definitely a thing for that that teachers need to keep in mind right is that one it's okay to be wrong from time to time and also we're always learning right we're always learning especially from our students which i know that is one of your one of your fortes right is learning from your students uh you you, you said you were you know the first year you were struggling or you cried a lot i'm guessing it, it was out of you know the frustration and feeling like you weren't being so successful so at what point did you feel like you started to get the hang of it and you started to feel good at what you do I think well, at that time I was getting my master's. So I started my master's um, like October or November of that first year because I wasn't credentialed and I had to get licensed or I would lose my job. And I, so I, I was doing a lot of reflective practice through my coursework. And I remember thinking probably my second year, um, it doesn't really matter a whole lot what I say to them when I'm like lecturing and doing direct instruction. I could give the most perfect lecture and it could be beautiful and I could spend hours on it and that doesn't mean they're going to learn the content. So I think when I was able to kind of step away from that and that um, seeking perfection in that and focusing more on their learning. So it wasn't about what I said, it was about what they were learning and how they were interacting with the content. So I, I started asking myself that question, how can I get them to interact with the content better and how can I better teach this? Instead of like, what are all the words? How do I put together my PowerPoint perfectly and have all the cool effects? And that's not what it's about. It's about getting them to engage in the content and how can I do that better? So that was really when I made that shift and it took a lot of pressure off of me and um, I could really tap into them as learners and like try to get into their head. So that was the shift for me. That's great. It's, it's like that saying that says students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? Exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. 
And, and just for clarification, that you said you learned this during your second year, and you mean your second year of your master's degree or your second year of teaching? My second year of teaching, but it was also my second year of my master's degree. I did that in two years, so I started it right away that fall. Oh, wow. So you were on your first year of teaching and also doing your master's? Yep. I had wow. to. Yeah. Wow. That, it's just, um, I know me for my first year teaching just felt like such a uh, it's just like a very high demand but almost like I felt like it was it was a 16 17 18 hour job just you know teaching one content uh, my very first year so oof, doing a master's on top of that I applaud you Ms. Ross it was a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you, you did your, you, you know, this is when you were doing your master's in, I assume, education. And yep. okay, then you did your second, your second master's after how many years? Um, I started taking, so I graduated with my first in 2010. And I started taking coursework in like 2015. Um, and then I finished that one in 2018. And, and why did you decide to pursue the second master's which is, what is this, this one in curriculum and instruction or in science and education? Science education, yeah. The first one was in curriculum and instruction, and then this was a master's of science, and so I wanted to do a thesis. But this was, the second master's was the degree that I wanted to do all along, but it wouldn't get me certified. So I um, had to do the first one, which I loved. I thought it would be jumping through hoops, but it was transformative. And then the second one was the one I wanted to do. So once I was kind of settled and I had time and I took it slowly, I... I did that one and it was amazing. I'd, I'd love to hear more about it. But first, I, I mean, so you, you did these two master's degrees and clearly that wasn't enough for you because now you're pursuing a PhD as well. Um, can you tell us more about the, the PhD and, and the dissertation that you're focusing on? Sure. So I'm getting a PhD from Texas Tech in curriculum and instruction. It's a STEM emphasis. And um, I will be working on looking at teacher retention in rural schools mostly and what are the factors that keep teachers in the classroom. So I am focusing on what are the, some of the psychological capital factors that we can grow in teachers to help them to stay in the classroom. And these are probably some of the factors that grew in me during my first few years of teaching and what helped me to stay in the classroom and not quit. So I'm really interested in that. We definitely have a teacher shortage in rural areas and especially rural reservation schools. And so um, I'm really interested in um, what are, how can we leverage professional development and mentorships to develop these skills in teachers to keep them in the classroom? Nice. And so far from what you found, have you found any, um, any conclusive answers or anything interesting? This is my second semester, so I'm, we're not even working on a literature review yet, but um, we, we get to do a little bit of research on that while we're learning to be PhD students. But I have learned that the focus is shifting away from teacher recruitment and more towards teacher retention. And that's where more of the research is going because while we're able to, in some ways we can meet that need of teacher recruitment and get teachers in the classroom and in programs, we have a huge exodus problem. So definitely the the research is shifting to retention and that's why I shifted my focus to retention. And then also a lot of the focus is on like situated theory where we're looking at what are the factors keeping teachers in the classroom, like teacher pay, um, administrative leadership, 
working with the community, how much they feel like they fit into the community, things like that. But I'm more interested in, and there hasn't been a lot of research in this, in my topic, in um, how we can build up some of these skills and attitudes like self-efficacy and resilience and, and how can we leverage those things to keep teachers in the classroom. So that's what I found so far. You've been nominated now as a National Teacher of the Year finalist out of all the teachers in the nation. What does that mean to you? Um, well, it was shocking, very shocking. It doesn't happen in Montana very often. I don't think we've even had a National Teacher of the Year come to Montana and speak ever um, that I know of. So it was very meaningful and scary. Um, and it took a long time to get used to the idea. Then I got to go to Google for the induction for all the state teachers of the year and meet everyone. And um, that's when things finally kind of sunk in and clicked for me because I didn't think that I could possibly represent teachers from all over the nation because I have a really small scope and small experience. And um, I realized that my students are just like their students and I'm a teacher just like them. And they probably had students misbehaving in their classroom just like I did for the sub, you know. <laughs> um, so it was, it was really moving um, to meet them all and get to know them all and see that we're all just the same. And that this is just a, a distinction that allows some of us, a few of us to step up and represent teachers. And so I can, I can fill that role. I, I realize that I can do that. I can represent teachers um, because I love teachers and um, that's who I am. That's, it's in my blood. It's who I was meant to be. And so, um, so I guess that's what it means to me. And it doesn't mean that I'm the best teacher, even in Montana. It doesn't mean I'm the best teacher or one of the best teachers in the nation. It just means that I can represent teachers. Yeah, that's, that's a very, that's a very humble attitude. I love that. Now, even if you were to win National Teacher of the Year for the whole nation, that wouldn't make you feel like you're the best teacher? No. <laughs> okay, I don't know. I, 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 I do think you should give yourself some credit, though, Ms. Ross. Like, the, the, the resume that you have is very impressive. Yeah, but I know, I know myself, and I know my faults, and I'm my worst critic, and I know what I need to work on, and um, where I hope to be someday. I'll probably never get there, you know? I, I know the areas that I need to grow in and the, the mindsets that I need to leave behind that I haven't, that I haven't finished grappling with. So I know I'm not there and I probably never will be. And I, I don't even know what that means. I don't know what it would even mean to be the best teacher. Like, what yeah. even, how can you measure that? You know? Yeah, no, that's true. That's very true. And I mean, right now, as, as the, the great teacher that you are, I know that you're, you know, all teachers right now are having to come up with some innovative ways with how to teach because the coronavirus pandemic has closed all the schools. So how, how has this pandemic affected you and your students? It's definitely been a ton of work for me and I've had to rethink a lot of my ideologies and how I look at the classroom. And so we, we have a, a lesser load so I think that's important for people to hear. We're, we're probably at 50% of what we would normally do, be doing. And that's too much for some students because they have other things going on at home. Just like I have other things going on at home. My three kids are in there in the kitchen and you can probably hear them. And I have to do, you know, web conferences with my students with all of that and grading papers and planning lessons and also homeschooling my kids. And some of them are homeschooling their siblings and working um, and so I think we have all had to really be honest with ourselves and look at that and tease out what is most critical for us to learn now. 
And I'm fortunate that I'm a science teacher. And so most everything that we're learning about now is about COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2. And um, we can learn about the content that we have left in the year through that lens. But I think the thing that I'm focusing on most that I was able to do a lot of yesterday with my students is just connect with them and really ask them, how are they doing? What's going well? What's not going well? And um, just kind of reflect on what this is doing in their lives and how they're coping with it and whether they're coping with it and, and how we should be relating to what's happening and, and also how we can be a voice to help. So I think um, that's kind of the perspective that we're all taking in this, my, myself and my students. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's really interesting because I, I, there are two things that came to mind when you, when you said what you said. The first thing, you said that you were connecting with them um, and asking them how they're doing and, and you know, how, how are they dealing with this. Are, are you talking about like how they're doing with all their schoolwork or you just mean on a personal level, how are they doing? More on a personal level. I know that some of them have things going on at home and some of them would rather not be home. And that's really hard. Like, I, I know that personally. I know I know the stuff. It's, it's really hard to know what to do with that. And I think that we need to, in this setting, <clears throat> like normally I would be able to talk to them in the classroom, like privately and help them work through things. But in this setting, I can't do that. So I have to find ways to like give them the tools to equip them or um, maybe help them to look at things from other perspectives to get through some of this stuff. Okay, okay. But also there's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and that, and that was going to be the second thing, right. Is, is I heard you say that what you're doing is instead of, instead of trying to adapt the curriculum that you're supposed to teach is I'm hearing you say that you're making what's happening right now in the world relevant to their studies. Is that, is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. And I, I want to be real. I'm doing both. Like we have, I mean, we had three chapters left in biology and I want them to learn those things. I want them to learn about how proteins are made, protein synthesis and how cells are made. So that's what we're doing now, but we're doing that through the lens of how is this virus made in our cells? So that's how we're learning that instead of learning it like kind of in a traditional way and they're way more engaged. And then the next two chapters are on evolution. And so we're going to learn about the evolution of the virus and how that can affect us. So we're still learning the content and I still expect them to have a certain level of mastery in it, but we're, I'm, I'm leveraging the pandemic for my own selfish efforts, I guess, because they're, that's what they're into. And that's what I'm into. That's what I'm reading about and learning about. And um, so we can use that to learn about, the rest of the content for the year. Yeah, no, that's great. I feel like that's what a national teacher of the year would do. <laughs> I'm just teasing. <laughs> you recently published an article called My Best Teachers Have Always Been My Students. Uh, and then you state in that article that deep, relevant, impactful, and world-changing learning can still happen. And you, we've kind of just touched on this, but can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so in my classroom, especially in my science research class, my students are doing research on really cutting edge topics. Like I had one student this year working with breast cancer and he was trying a novel treatment from Germany to see if it would be able to treat breast cancer. And I had, um, last year I had a student <clears throat> looking at how phages infect bacteria, which are phages are viruses that infect bacteria to use it instead of antibiotics. Um, and we've had a, a wide variety of other topics too. And so they're usually doing impactful, world-changing, really meaningful research 
And I didn't want to leave that behind because I felt like we could still do that, but I wasn't sure how to do that. Um, so I had some ideas on how to do some open-ended projects with COVID-19 and let them kind of choose their own path and what they were researching at the time, because I know they're all doing tons of research right now because they're equipped to do that. But I wasn't sure how to do that. I wasn't sure how to design those open-ended projects. And so I sent out this long email to all of my students about my plan. And this was, we had a week to um, kind of prep. So I um, sent this long email out to, to talk to them about what my plan was for their learning. We had a week to prepare in Montana to prepare for online learning. And immediately, so at the end of the email, I um, put that I wanted to do some open-ended projects on COVID-19, but I wasn't sure how to do that. And I wanted their input and their feedback on the whole plan. And immediately within moments, three students emailed me back and they had ideas of what research projects they could do. In fact, um, one of them wants to do it as a science research project last or next year and spend all year on it. And one of them so that we live in a ranching community, lots of agriculture, and she had noticed that some of the ranchers had been talking about how they vaccinate their cattle for a coronavirus, um, which may or may not be true, but they were saying that they weren't concerned because their cattle are already vaccinated and it's not going to hurt us here. And she was really concerned about that claim and that, that mindset. And so she wanted a chance to investigate it and look at the virus, the, the vaccine that's given to cattle and look at the structure of the virus and how that vaccine works and then compare it to COVID-19 and the vaccine efforts there. And then she wanted to actually share that information out and talk to the ranchers about her research. So, um, and then I had another student who wanted to look at like the psychological and physiologic physiological changes in, um, in people who are now engaging in quarantine lifestyles and how that can affect us. So right away, I, it just clicked for me and I was like, they, they just did it for me. Like I didn't know how to do this and they showed me. So it was a really powerful moment. I, I sat there and cried. I guess I cry a lot. <laughs> and then I and then I finally was able to get back to work because I was really stuck for a while. And I needed them. Like, I, I think I felt so disconnected from them. And it's really hard to plan for students that you can't even see and talk to. So I, I was finally able to move forward and respond to them, respond to that. And uh, so I designed a big project and um, they will get to choose their topic like that. And it, it doesn't even have to necessarily be um, super science related. It could be like, for example, they get to choose um, the product of their project. They're going to do five projects throughout the quarter. And so maybe they will do an interview with um, maybe a World War II veteran if they can find one and talk about how this is similar and different to World War II. So that might be one example of a project. Or they might do uh, they might uh, do a host a debate with their peers um, on a topic like maybe wearing masks or something. And then some other examples are um, they could do like a TED talk or a TikTok. They suggested TikTok and I thought they said TED talk. <laughs> so <laughs> both. So um, and then the, the purpose is there's a variety of other projects and they can choose whatever they want to. They can make one up. But the purpose is, is that they will have a chance to do research on one topic or many topics, and then they have to pick one to share out. So just like this student with the ranchers, she's going to share that information with her community, with our community. Our, my students are going to pick one of their projects to share out to the world. So maybe they'll publish um, an article in the paper, or maybe they will um, 
put a meme, they could make like an informational meme or an infographic and put that on social media so that they're gonna have to share some of their research out to the world. Wow, Ms. Ross, it sounds like you're creating a lot of scientists. And, and what I love about this project that you're, you know, that you're having your students do is that as I'm listening, I'm, I, I can see how this can also apply to many other subjects, right? Like if I'm, as an English teacher, I can, I can totally apply this whole debate thing with in my class. Uh, or also turn it into some kind of, you know, some poem, some presentation, some interview. So that's, I, I really, I really love that idea. And they, they can also do um, this in cooperation with other classes also, which we'll also do. So they can do one project for more than one class. From your perspective, I mean, speaking on that, so what, what kind of advice would you have for teachers to best help their students get through the rest of this year? I think the number one priority is to really check in with them and see how they're doing on a personal level. Because frankly, even when things are normal, if you connect with your students, um, you're going to get a lot more learning out of them. I think motivation is a really tricky thing in our students. And some students are really innately motivated and some are not. And um, I, I think it's the wrong perspective to use power to get them to be motivated. I think that can be really dangerous. Yeah. I don't, I don't like to be motivated in that way uh, or domination. Those are not, those are not, way, or even punishment. Um, and so I think the best way to motivate students is really connect with them. And then we also need to, in general, be designing really engaging, authentic lessons that are meaningful to them. We should be doing that anyway because I am not motivated by busy work. And I know when I'm learning and when I'm not learning, and so do they, they can see through that. So if we're designing lessons that are really meaningful and impactful for them and really promote their learning and put them first, that's when you're gonna get motivation out of them. And so in this setting, we need to prioritize connecting with them and really seeing how they're doing. And doing it at all costs, like I think we need to, even if it means the phone call, if they're answering our emails or they're not coming to the web conferences or office hours or whatever, um, we need to find ways to connect to every student and make sure they're okay. That's definitely, like you said, a very tricky thing. And I almost forgot to mention this when you first mentioned the, um, the outreach that you did to your students to ask them what's, you know, what's something that you would want to do or, or being honest with them and open with them by saying, like, I, I don't know exactly how to teach you this. It, it does take us a, a level of humility, right? To be able to admit to your students that you don't know how to teach in this manner. And because having, I mean, having that, that level of humility, especially with someone say with a resume like yours, right? You've been teaching for X amount of years and you have two master's degrees and, and, and some of them it's in, it's in curriculum and education. And you have these students, right? Who are 15, 16 year olds, and you're asking them, how, I don't know, I don't know what to do. But mm -hmm. one thing we're not keeping in mind is that they are the recipients of the very thing that we're trying to put out. So it's like, you have to, you have to remember that too, right? Is that they really can't teach you a lot because they are yeah. in a very unique position. Yeah, there's no one on the planet to better get that information from. And when you ask students to do metacognition and talk about their learning and talk about what went well and what didn't go well, that's when they're going to get more engaged in their learning. Like mm -hmm. it flips a switch in them. And for most of them, we, we do that starting at the beginning of the year. And most of them say, I've never thought about this before. 
or some of them have, but they've never been allowed to talk about it. They've never been allowed to talk about their learning. And, um, and then to speak to the, the vulnerability part, I, um, I talk about my failures a lot in the classroom. Like even I'll, I'll come in even that same day or the next day and say, well, yesterday was awful. And I messed up here and here, and I'm really sorry. And, and I, I would like to have a chance to fix that. And it's okay to fail. And then when they have times like that, I remind them, like, remember when I said this and it was completely backwards yesterday? Um, and so they know, like, it's a safe space to do that and to make mistakes and that it, it's fine and we can grow from them. And I want them to see that I'm growing and learning just like they are. Because I'm always, I'm always a learner first. I'm the lead learner in the classroom, but I'm a learner first before I'm even a teacher. Before we wrap this up, is there anything else that you would have liked to tell the audience before we go into rapid fire? Um, I think that I would like to tell other teachers to give yourself permission to totally rethink this whole education thing and how we do school and the also the power dynamics between yourself and your students because that's not that should not be the sole motivation that gets your students to learn that's that's what's wrong with the education system actually um, and that's one of the reasons I was excited to do this podcast because I liked the name education movement and I hope that we can see a movement in education because of this. So I encourage everybody to latch onto that and um, take, take it for a ride and, and open your mind and be open to how this can look different and be different. And I hope that when we come out of this, I personally actually hope it lasts long enough that we can actually make some changes and actually have time to reflect on how it could look different and just be open to that. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, education doesn't have to be like it has been for the last hundred years. It's, it's time for a change. It's, it's time and we needed this. Ms. Ross, you just kickstarted my heart. <laughs> okay. So let's, uh, let's wrap this up by asking you some rapid fire questions. So okay. I'm going to ask you a series of 10 to 11 questions, and you just tell me the very first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. Question number one. What's your favorite science topic? Um, biochemistry and molecular biology have always been my favorite. Coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> Who's your favorite president? I'm going to plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What profession or what other profession would you be doing if it's not teaching? I was going to say like uh, teaching pre-service teachers, but that's still teaching. Um, I guess I would be a scientist. Yeah. 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 I, I would guess. I would have guessed that. I would have put a hundred dollars that you would have said a scientist. What's your favorite book? Um, right now, my favorite book is called, I have it right here. It is um, Cultural Diversity in Education by James Banks. It's a textbook and it's amazing. So if you're interested in cultural um, diversity in education, you should definitely pick this one up. Are you more of an Apple Music or Spotify person? Um, Spotify. I don't do Apple anything. So oh. Spotify, I don't. I use um, like Pandora more and stuff, but. Okay, so would you also put Pandora on top of Spotify? Yeah. Ooh. I do Spotify for podcasts, but. Okay. Who is someone you admire? My dad. 
What is your guilty pleasure? Working. <laughs> What's your favorite movie? The Martian. Are you more of a cat or a dog person? Cat. All right, last question. I don't trust atoms. You know why? Because they make up everything. Yeah. Oh my gosh, science teacher. <laughs> Great job. Yes, because they make up everything. <laughs> That's, That's a funny one. Yeah. Well, Miss Ross, thank you so much for joining me today. I had such a good time talking to you. Me too. Thank you so much. It was yes. great. Okay. And before we go, Miss Ross, if someone wants to learn more about you or the work that you're doing, where can they go and what can they do? Um, so they can follow me on Facebook. Uh, I have a page. It's Linda Ross, 2020 Montana Teacher of the Year. And then I'm also on Twitter and my handle is 2020 Montana T-O-Y. So those are two places that you can follow me. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Miss Ross. I'm sure you and I will be in touch and you take care of yourself, okay? Thank you. You too. All right. Bye-bye. always thank you for staying tuned to this episode with linda ross remember that you can always contact me through email at the education movement 20 at gmail.com or through facebook instagram and twitter at edu movement 20 i'm happy to hear your suggestions for how to make this show better or if you know of any other people that you think would be good for the show lastly be sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you stream your podcast so that you never miss an episode Until next time, friends, remember to stay healthy, stay safe, spread love, and spread hope.